recently I had two different conversations with two different people who had two diametrically different and opposing views over the state of affairs in the world today. Basically, one person said that they thought things in the world were getting better, and the other one said things in the world are getting worse. And afterwards, I was reminded the story of a man who was told, cheer up, things could be worse. To which the man later said, I did as, as I was told, I cheered up, and things did get worse. <laughs> in many ways, this is the message the Apostle Paul has been telling uh, Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, through these letters. Paul wrote this letter from prison in a cell in Rome, waiting to be executed for his faith in Jesus, encouraging Timmy, Timothy to, to cheer up, to um, know that things could be worse, because here, here he is in the midst of, of prison, and he's saying to Timothy, stay strong, Remain faithful in spite of my imprisonment, in spite of the struggles that you're having. If you remember back in 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, the Apostle Paul told Timothy to, to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Have nothing to do with foolish, he said, ignorant conversations. Don't, don't quarrel, be kind to everyone. Teach patiently, endure evil, correct your opponents with gentleness. And if Timothy had been cheered up from that, if he had felt encouraged by what Paul had said, the apostle now tells him in the first verse of our text for today why he's been telling him to cheer up. He said, but understand this, this is verse 1, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now this verse is the key that opens the entire chapter here we're looking at. Paul plants the words of this chapter in the context of the last days. Now he did the same back in 1 Timothy 4 when he spoke of the latter times. The, the last days and the latter times do not refer to something in the distant future. In the Bible, the latter times, the last days, refers to the final phase of God's divine purpose and plan of salvation. And the final phase began when Jesus was, was born and as he became our Messiah ultimately rose from the dead and it will end, the last days will end when Jesus returns. Paul lived in the last days as we do because we both are living during that time when salvation, the plan is coming to an end. And these words clearly have application for us today. And the Apostle Paul tells us why. So let's Look together first at the first five, five verses. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure other than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul says. 
So, so God's word here is presenting a list of the times of difficulty we will experience in the last days. The Greek word here for difficulty occurs only one other place in the Bible, and that's in Matthew 8.28. We read that Jesus was approached by two demon-possessed men who were so fierce, so difficult, that no one could pass by them. So Paul is telling us that the latter days and the last days will be extremely difficult. They will be fierce and violent and dangerous as fallen humanity casts off all moral restraint and society begins to disintegrate. Now we see that happening in the way Paul puts his words together here. First, he speaks of a total rejection of God, which causes people to become unholy, ungrateful, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then second, we see these things lead to a total moral collapse as people become lovers of money, heartless, proud, arrogant, unappeasable, swan with conceit, and not loving good. And third, in the end, these things will cause a total breakdown of society, where people are slanderous, treacherous, reckless, brutal, abusive, disobedient to parents, and without self-control. And so this last phase speaks of a time when um, there's no rules, no moral compass, no absolutes, no restraints of any kind. In a glance at our world today, we see that. We feel it creeping in, slow but sure. In 1988, the theologian Carl Henry made a stunning prediction in his book, Twilight of a Great Civilization, when he stated that in North America, as it progressively loses its Judeo-Christian heritage, paganism, he said, will grow bolder. He predicted that the days we live in now would be just like the first century church who had to deal with raw paganism, is the word that he uses. And we see that today. We see raw paganism in our culture, things that are happening that we never would have imagined are happening today. As the list of the behaviors we just looked at, this catalog of corruption is part of what we see in our culture today. And this is, these words here are similar to what Paul says in the last 12 verses of chapter one in Romans when he describes the conditions of the world will happen as time goes down and down. And and as I read through this list and sat down with my Greek New Testament and started to work through defining these words and applying them, I will admit that I began to feel the weight of what it meant and how they are to be applied. Because I see these things not only in the fallen sinful world all around us, but I see them in me. And I see them in you. And I see them in us. And I see them in our culture. And I see them in our church. And I see them in our community. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul says. By the mercy and grace of God, you and I are here today because God did not avoid such people as us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
into the world to pay the penalty for our rebellious rejection of him and of all of the things that we read in this list. So we might know forgiveness and redemption and cleansing and healing and joy and restoration in our relationship with God that we were created for. Paul reminds us that in the last days, there will be some who claim Jesus who will have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. In the last days, there will be men and women and children who will turn from the relationship with Jesus and embrace a religion about Jesus. Paul speaks of that reality of religion because it, it will become popular in the last days because people, even some who claim Christ, will seek refuge and hope and joy and understanding and purpose in things of the world rather than Jesus himself. People will choose religion over faith because religion is a comfortable, safe ritual that is controllable. We see this increasingly in our culture in that our culture today doesn't embrace Christianity. They embrace what? Spirituality. It's faddish. Everybody is spiritual now. And it's even more faddish, increasingly popular, for those spiritual, spirituality people to embrace Jesus as part of that. And so what happens is people who are following religion will ask the right questions, but they will follow the wrong answers because it's not centered in Christ. It will be religion for religion's sake, not for Jesus, not about Jesus. And inversely, it will be popular, and it is now, for those who claim Christ to embrace beliefs and principles and theologies and philosophies that are in direct contradiction to the Word of God. Uh, They will deny the power, like it says here, that they profess to believe in. The effect here will be that they will do whatever they want to do, even though the Word says something different. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, Paul says we are to avoid such people. But in verses 6 through 9, he then says, For among you are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So the apostle Paul tells us here the kind of religious people we are to avoid. Specifically, we read that in the last days, we must avoid those who practice their religion through the methodology of imitation. Okay? Paul speaks here. He references Exodus 7.11, where Moses was sent by God to talk to Pharaoh. And his brother Aaron miraculously turned his staff into a snake to let Pharaoh know that he was dealing with the living God and not a couple of dumb shepherds from the boondocks. But there were miracles, excuse me, there were magicians in the court Jazz and Jambers, here it says, who were also able to turn their staff into snakes. And of course, ultimately, Aaron's snake ate both of the magician's snake because God always wins in the end. Amen. 
And Paul's point here, though, is that religious people do have their magicians who will imitate the miracle of God, imitate the Word of God, imitate even God Himself. That kind of corrupt, counterfeit faith will emerge in the last days, and we see that all around us. It will come through false teachers, even sometimes in the family of God, and as Paul has been warning us all through his letters, and he talks about these are people who know a great deal of knowledge of the Word of God, but knowledge without the truth of the Word of God. It says right here, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And he says, these are disqualifying, he says, regarding the faith. Again, having an appearance of godliness, but not the power. It's interesting to be the most educated society in all of history. We consider ourselves, I think, to be the most highly intelligent, reasonable, learned, and most civilized generation ever to live. Yet the reality of our heart attitudes and behaviors that we saw in God's word, we're seeing the other side of that. That in spite of our supposed risenness, we still are way down on the list. And Paul's telling us here there'll be many who claim Christ, who will know just enough about God to imitate or give the appearance that what they know is from God, but their lifestyles and their attitudes reveal they don't know God himself. None of us here likes to be deceived, uh, though we live in a world that is built on a foundation of deceit. Political operatives espouse truth that is construed to inspire or exploit or put someone else down. Uh, media and marketing campaigns seek to sway and influence us. Careers and positions of power are advanced through maneuver and persuasion. And both men and women, um, I'm going to get in trouble now. <laughs> both men and women condemn deception, yet they cover their bodies with paints and putty and padding in order to hide who they truly are. That's right. <laughs> in the same way, Someone who just says they know the things about God doesn't mean they know God himself. There's an imitation there. As surely as the devil told Eve that she would not die if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve did die because God told her beforehand, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So just as the evil one will work to, to convince us that God's word means something it doesn't mean, the evil one will work to convince us through false teachers that religious belief about Jesus is preferable to a relationship with Jesus. But we are called to a relationship with Jesus. Amen? Paul then says in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teachings, my conduct, my aim in life, my, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So here Paul 
exhorts Timothy, he exhorts us to remain faithful and steadfast in the last days during times of difficulty. After God's word first tells us who and what we should avoid, he now tells us who and what we should follow. If we follow the the ungodly, we will become ungodly. There's there's a principle here that he's put in front of us that we will become what we follow. If we follow those who are worldly, we'll become worldly. If we follow people who are prideful and critical, we will be prideful and critical. But if we follow people who are following Jesus, we will end up looking like Jesus. And Paul uses himself here as a case. In effect, he says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow my teaching. Follow my conduct. Follow my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my sufferings. Because they reflect Jesus' teaching and conduct and aim in life and faith and patience and love and steadfastness and persecutions and sufferings. The Apostle Paul points out how he had followed Jesus even into persecution and suffering. In Antioch, he was opposed, fiercely opposed. In Iconium, he was opposed and almost stoned. In Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. And this is what happens when those who truly follow Jesus because it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is why many people choose religion over relationship with Christ. For what happened to Paul would happen to Timothy. What happened to Paul and Timothy sooner or later will happen to us if we are going to follow Jesus. What is happening right now in Sudan, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Indonesia, in Afghanistan, in China will someday happen to us if we are going to faithfully and steadfastly follow Jesus. And while it might might not involve beatings or torture or imprisonment or death, it will surely involve things like ridicule and marginalization and rejection. And that's happening today in our culture. But then Paul says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thirteen verses later, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as only from the Son and from the Father, full of grace and truth. The book, brothers and sisters, that we have in our hands today is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is Jesus It is about Jesus, yes, but it's also Jesus. Jesus is this book. And Jesus is the one who God sent to go and die on a cross for us. So we might have our sins forgiven, so we might raise from the dead, so we might have eternal life and receive him as a Lord and Savior. Paul could remain steadfast and faithful 
when he wrote these words, we're looking at as he's sitting in prison, waiting to be executed, because he knew that the sacred writings were not a bunch of stories and ideas. They were first and foremost the revelation of Jesus Christ, which Paul says right here, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible, the Word of God, is the power of God that has been given to us by our most sovereign God of grace in these last days. What do we have in these last days? Well, one good thing about all the trouble we have is that it's stripping away stuff. And what we have in the end is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit here on earth. First and foremost, the Word of God is the revelation of Christ. The Bible, the Word of God, is the power of God through the crucified and risen Jesus Christ that overcomes religion, that overcomes and exposes imitation, that keeps us steadfast and faithful in difficult times of trial, struggle, and suffering. In 2 Timothy 3.15, he is telling us here, saturate your mind with the sacred writings because these things will make you wise, will allow you to understand and be part of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Timothy 6, he said, be controlled by the word of God, not by any unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. John 1.4, we know this happens because it's by the spirit of truth, the word of God. Revealed in the word, because the word becomes flesh to us. That's what that really means. This really becomes flesh to us. As we read it and it comes through us, it becomes real to us. Continue in what you have learned, he writes. Brothers and sisters, learn your Bible. Learn your Bible. Learning the word of God requires that you repeatedly read it and study it and memorize it and meditate on it. And there's no other way you and I can be changed by the word of God. Except by reading, studying, learning, memorizing, meditating. The Bible is not in harmony with human reason or philosophy. Not at all. The Bible is a synopsis of the thoughts of God about what is truly important in life. God is the ultimate realist. And his word describes, confronts, gives direction about anything and everything that we need to know. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, we read that the scripture is the hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. For none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So reading and studying and meditating and learning God's word will drastically change the way you think, your lifestyle, your attitude, and your behavior. And that's why many keep it at a distance. You cannot read this book without being changed by it. You cannot. The spirit of the word of God will make you think differently about yourself, about your spouse, about your children, about your family, about your life, about your work, about your church, about the world. Learning the word of God will drastically then change the way you behave. Now, some of you know the story of the mutiny on the bounty. A group of British soldiers who mutinied the HMS bounty in the early part of the 19th century. They seized the ship and they fled to the island of Pitcairn in the South Pacific. It was there they established their own colony. But they were a community of cutthroats. And slow but sure, they began to kill each other off. 
At some point it looked like it wouldn't be too long before they would all not be anymore. Then one of the mutineers, Alexander Smith, found a Bible, which his mother had slipped into his chest. And he began to read it. And he soon came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then he began to share it. And ultimately, when the mutineers were found and discovered some years ago, this was almost the ideal community. There was no justice. There was no uh, prison. Everything was on a godly level. They had not had influence from the world anymore. They simply had the word of God. They were godly people. And every family had been transformed by the power of the word. When you start to learn your Bible, that Bible will give you a new life. You'll be able to live your life for God realistically. You find yourself adjusting and changing as you detect and discern what God is saying to you, as he confronts and corrects those things that are impure and evil inside of us. The truth is, the Bible leads to life, not to death. The Bible is a book of grace, not of criticism. So turn off your television. Shut off your computer. Put away your cell phone and your iPad and open your Bible and read it and soak it up and eat it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Because there is no app or program or movie that can teach the grace and glory of God that you can learn in the Word of God. Continue what you have learned and firmly believe, Paul says, knowing from what, whom you have learned. Paul tells us we have to act on those things that we learn here, the thing that God reveals and convicts us of. See, we really don't believe in something until we practice it, until we live it, until it becomes real in our lives. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't deceive yourself. So that means do what the word of God says. Practice it. Take it to heart. Allow, allow even the passion and, and the glory and the joy and affections of God's heart touch your own heart and embrace that. Let it capture you. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, Paul writes, and, and a child's mind is easily impressed, not only by Christian truth, but also by the lies of the devil. In the last days that we live in, there is a battle for the hearts and souls of our children. Studies show an overwhelming amount of people come to faith at a young age. Those of us that are older like me is kind of a, an aberration in some ways. So it is essential we teach our children the word of God. And men, fathers, this is our task. This is our task. God is giving us the, op, uh, the responsibility, the obligation to teach and lead our families. Mothers are to do so too, but men, fathers, are giving that responsibility before God. And if we're going to teach the Word of God to our children, we need to learn it ourselves. Amen? I'm a little quieter about that one, Sean. The sacred writings are able to give you wisdom, he writes, that lead to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It is within the Word of God that we find real life, we all have hopes and dreams and ideals, but unless those hopes, dreams, and ideals are rooted in the heart of the wisdom that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ, we will be far and short away from what God desires for us in our lives. The Word of God points us to Jesus. 
The word of God gives us faith in Jesus. The word of God lets that flesh become real in our lives. Again, it's not the word that changes us. It's not the Bible that changes us. It's the spirit of God that comes through the word that changes us. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who's revealed in the Bible. Jesus is the one who's the basis of our hopes and our dreams and ideals. He's the one revealed. It's by and through the word that we see him. It's by and through the word we see our own self-centeredness and ego. Jesus revealed in the pages of scriptures. And he is the wonder and glory of the whole Bible. All scripture, he writes, is breathed out by God. Some of your Bibles say inspired. They use the phrase. But breathed out is a much closer uh, meaning to the original language. All scripture is breathed out by God, just like God himself in the beginning picked up clay and he breathed life into it. It's the same concept. When we open this up, God breathes life into us. That's what that's meaning. When Paul says that, you read this, you get life out of it. The wonder of the Bible is that God does those things with the Bible, just as God breathed dust out of the ground. The Bible is God's word. It is profitable for teaching, Paul writes. Now, there's a lot of good Christian books out there written by godly men and women, but they are all nothing more than secondary, supplemental opinions of the real truth of God. I have Christian books I love, but they're not as good as the Bible. The Bible is the best story, the best truth you can ever read. It is the Bible and the Bible alone that speaks truthfully to us. Some years ago, I spent a couple of days in a maximum security prison and I, <clears throat> I sat and prayed with a violent young man in a, in a prison who had killed a number of people as he received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so afterwards I gave him some um, counsel as to maybe he should read the next week in his Bible and so he did and I came back the next week and the first thing he said is he ran up to me and he said, Pastor Lee, this book is all about me. See, someone who came out of darkness knows that. We forget that sometimes. But this book is about us. It's about God, yes, and about Jesus. But it points out a lot about us in here too. God's word is to be used to point us in the right direction for reproof and correction, he says here. Reproof in the original language means to convict. So the Holy Spirit often uses scripture to, to waken us up to some sin in our lives. And then then we realize what we're doing. We're hurting ourselves or other people or whatever. The Bible then will make us aware of that so that we can be free and forgiven, that we need to change, we need to commit to a different direction, a different heart, a different attitude. That's conviction. Such power comes from God's word. But by the mercy and grace of God, never does the Holy Spirit point something out. At the same time, not revealed the new path to take. It doesn't say you're wrong. It says you're wrong, but here's where you need to go. The Bible, Bible gives you that, that direction always. It's not there to beat us up. It's there to steer us back into the right direction always. Correcting us, giving us new opportunities to walk with God and get things straightened out in our life. And brothers and sisters, when we take the word of God seriously, it will be true freedom and true life. The problem with us is we take ourselves too seriously. And then the word of God loses its power. The conviction of the Holy Spirit through scripture provides 
that correction for us. All scriptures breathed out by God and for training in righteousness. God has provided within this book the power to draw us all the way to himself into righteousness, to purify our lives, to, to reorient our attitudes, to enable you and I to every day be closer and closer to him. This righteousness that we get in the Bible began at the promise in the fall in the garden to the cry of sinful humanity when the waters rose up around Noah's ark to the affirming of God's promise to Abraham that the Messiah would come through his family to the 400 years of enslavement of a nation because people rebelled against God to the 40 years Moses led the people through the desert to being taken into captivity and exiled and returning to build the city, to Jesus' birth, to the cross, to the grave, to the glory of the resurrection, and then to us. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Anything and everything else in life falls short of the Bible's ability to make us complete and equipped for every work. Psychology, counseling, philosophy, self-help books, seminars, conferences, higher education have their place, but their place is far below where the Word of God should sit in our lives. What does Paul mean when he says that the Bible is adequate to equip us for every good work? Well, in a broad sense, it means everything we do. In a very specific sense, it means God's Word is sufficient in all matters of life whether it be thought or attitude or desires or what to say or what to believe or what to do, the Holy Spirit has the power, it's adequate, sufficient to do that in our lives. The power of God's word not only helps us remain steadfast in difficult times, but it also convicts us and teaches us and guides us into the life God created us for. The wholeness, the fullness the satisfaction of the world is never going to line up to the wholeness and fullness and satisfaction we can know in the Word of God. The Bible is an instruction book of all of life. It reveals how we can become a whole, satisfied, joyful people as God intended us to be, as it reveals in the book the one who gave his life for us. Billy Sunday was an athlete who traded away the glory of professional baseball for the glory of God in pursuit of sharing the gospel for the rest of his life. When he died, the following words are written in his Bible. 29 years ago, the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered the portico of Genesis, walked down the corridor of the Old Testament art galleries where pictures of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel hung on the wall. I passed into the music room of the Psalms where the spirit sweeps the keyboard of nature until it seems that every reed and pipe in God's organ responds to the harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chamber of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher is heard in the conservatory of Sharon and Lily of the Valley where the sweet spices filled and perfume my life. I entered the business office of Proverbs and on into the observatory of the prophets where I saw telescopes of various sizes pointing to far-off events 
concentrating on the bright and morning star which was to rise above the moonlit hills of Judea for salvation and redemption. I then entered the audience room of the King of Kings, catching a vision written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thence into the correspondence room with Paul, Peter, James, and John writing their epistles. Lastly, I stepped into the throne room of Revelation, where the tower, the glittering peaks, where the where sits the King of Kings upon his throne of glory, with the healing of the nations in his hand. And I cried out, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, Lord of all. I believe the Bible is the pure, unadulterated, inherent, infallible, true word of God. And according to our statement of faith, we believe that too. Our statement of faith says, we believe that the Bible is the revealed word of God, fully and verbally inspired, written under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We believe it is without error in the original transcripts and is true and trustworthy in all that it asserts. It has supreme authority in all matters, all matters of faith and conduct. Because I believe that, and because we believe that, then we should live out our lives, raise our families, work at our jobs, enjoy our play, relate to one another, make our decisions, sing our songs, pray our prayers, listen to sermons, give our offerings, serve our community, share our faith, conduct our business meetings, and work together according to the principles of the truth of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, we are a people of the book. We are a people of the book. And the power of God's Word will help us to remain steadfast and faithful, not only in difficult days, but in good days when God is still directing and guiding us to be all that he wants us to be. Because all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The great John Wesley once expressed his commitment to God's word this way. He writes, I am a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a a few moments hence, and I am seen no more. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself teaches us the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it in a book. Oh, he writes, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of that one book. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people of the book. And the pages that we have are the pages of the Word who became flesh, the one who we call Jesus, who gives us life. Amen? Amen.